All right. So we are in our fourth and final week of our sermon series that's called Redeemed Vocation, How Christ Reshapes Society. Uh, What we've been through thus far, uh, Paul has been talking to various categories of Christians within the Ephesian church. Uh, Those categories have been wives and husbands in marriage. Uh, Those categories have been children and parents. And then this week, we are looking at uh, Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, and we're calling it employment in light of Christ. Employment. And so, all of us are either children or parents. All of us are children. Some of us are parents. Um, Some of us are married. But I'd say most of us are under some kind of socioeconomic structure of some kind, uh, under some form of leadership in your life. Uh, For those with jobs and bosses, uh, this is self-evident. You know, who sets your agenda for this week? Is it, are you self-employed or is someone kind of above you in your, in your economic, your, your job, your, your vocation? For those of you guys who are in the UGM recovery program, uh, your job is to be in recovery, right? And you are under UGM's influence, leadership, authority. And obviously you're putting yourself there. You're not forced to be there, but you are there. And if you're there, you're, you're under their influence. You're under their, their jurisdiction. Um, for those who have been in prison, you know, you, there's an authority there that's from the state. And it's the same if, if you've been in military. You know, it's sort of a voluntary putting yourself under the, the hopefully loving uh, authority of somebody else. And so, the question we have today is how do authority structures, of whatever iteration we're talking about, how do authority structures fit into the inaugurated kingdom of Jesus Christ? The inaugurated yet not fully consummated kingdom of Jesus Christ. How do we go about doing our jobs in a way that represents Jesus Christ? Or if you're someone who has authority over others, how do you go about using your authority in a way that acknowledges that somebody else is in authority over you? So those are the questions that we are faced with today in our passage. And uh, we will also get to the elephant in the room, (laughs) which is that the first word of this passage is slaves. (laughs) So we're going to get into that. So let's um, read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Paul writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants, and the word is actually slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no 
impartiality with him. Let's pray. Father, this is a, an interesting text, to say the least. But it is part of your word. And therefore, like Paul writes elsewhere, it is profitable for teaching, for exhortation, for instruction, and for training in righteousness that we might be fully equipped for every good work. And I pray that it would be your word that does the heavy lifting, partnering with the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Clear away the cobwebs, clear away the distractions, and let us be attentive to what you'd have to say to us individually, as well as us corporately as Calvary the Hill. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Paul is in the middle, like we've been talking about the last few weeks, of instructing the Ephesian church using what is called a household code. And a household code in ancient times was, was a pretty cookie-cutter operation. It had these categories. Uh, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. That was the uh, liturgy of household codes that even Aristotle referred to in his writings. And so first Paul addressed wives and husbands, and then he addressed children and parents, and finally here he addresses slaves and masters. So 35% of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. So there's a good chance that one out of three people in this church were slaves. And the rest were most likely part of households that owned slaves. This wasn't a distant reality like it is for us. This was real life. This was the day-to-day -day grind. This is just normal. And, this, and they were used to it. But what they weren't used to was being a Christian at the same time. And remember, Paul is also in the middle, in a, in a bigger uh, reality of instructing this church how to live a corporately spirit-filled life as a community. This whole section is under one heading back in verse 18 when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And then he describes what that looks like in verses 19, 20, and 21. And in 21, it's sort of what kicks off the household code when he says, submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. So that's the context. We need to not read these exhortations, these instructions, these, these uh, commands as moral exhortations to follow. These are spirit-empowered attitudes and postures that you can't conjure up. Imagine you're a slave working for a master that threatens you, that nitpicks you, that abuses you. Imagine trying to work like this in your power. That's not going to happen. But if you're filled with the Spirit of God and know your worth to Him, then you can most assuredly do it, and then some. So, the elephant in the room. Slavery in the Bible. Yikes! <laughs> right? So, bef before we deal with employment, 
authority structures, we got to deal with the fact that the first word here is slaves. And some of your translations might kind of try and whitewash it a little bit. Bond servants, servants. The word is slaves, okay? And you, you might have heard that uh, taught before that this version of slavery is, is maybe like good slavery, whereas, you know, what America uh, and England and the West uh, was a proponent of and, and practiced for hundreds of years was bad slavery. And you'd be right in that it was different. But it was still slavery. People still owned people as property. So you can't get around the fact that the Bible assumes the institution of slavery right here, both in the Old Testament and the New. It's just there, plain as day. So we're going to get into that a little bit. But I just want to (laughs) provide a little fair warning. I can't possibly say all there is to be said about slavery in the Bible this morning. But um, I do want to make a, a little bit of a plug for one of the books on the shelf out there. It's called Reading While Black. If any of you have read it, it's awesome. There's a theologian uh, over in, where is he, Wheaton, and his name's Esau Macaulay. And he basically writes this book called Reading While Black. And he does it, and his purpose in writing this book is sort of an apologetic for black Christians. And the apologetic, the, the thing he's trying to convey to black Christians is not to throw out the Bible, but in fact to actually use the Bible to press hard against some of these really intense issues, including, and he writes, including things like policing or political protests or black anger and suffering or slavery in the Bible. So just a a plug for that book. This is powerful for me to read. But all, all that is to say, I can't possibly say all that could be said about slavery in the Bible this morning, but I will make a few comments to help us kind of face it head on, but so that we can go through it and get what we can extract from this passage, because there's some really good stuff here. So let's do that. So I'll make a few comments. Slavery in the Bible and slavery here in ancient, the ancient Near East. So slavery was different, but not by a ton, but some key differences here. Uh, It wasn't based on race. So that's probably the biggest and most important difference to acknowledge, uh, as well as the causes of slavery were related to debt or war. Okay, they weren't related to kidnapping and trading. It was was more of an economic and sort of a a war reality. Other differences, um, many slaves in this time could work, could, could... Therefore, then save up, buy their own freedom, um, receive an, a, a specialized education for specific trades. Um, and then many were able to then establish client relationships with their former masters as kind of a sponsor. Like, I'll hire you to do this work um, after you buy your freedom. All that to say, is it still slavery? <laughs> okay. A little bit of a difference, but it's still slavery. And here... We're probably, uh, you know, we're reading it from a 21st century American uh, mindset. And so we're kind of mad, (laughs) you know, because Paul doesn't here instruct slaves to rebel and fight against slavery (laughs) as an institution. 
right? He instructs both Christian slaves and Christian slave owners who were in the same church on how to be Christians in their context. So here's something to keep in mind as far as the Bible and slavery. We actually in America might still have state-sponsored slavery if it weren't for the Bible. Why do I say that? Because it was Christians that fought for the abolition of slavery. And before the 18th century abolitionists, nobody else was fighting against slavery. It was a deeply embedded institution across cultures. So slavery in America and England and in the ancient times, it did not need Paul's words here to maintain its existence. It didn't need the Bible to maintain its hold on the world. And it was because of Christianity that slavery became eventually unacceptable and untenable. Why did it become unacceptable? Well, we, we read in this very passage notes and tones that will undermine slavery at its root. Look at verse 9. It says, He who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And then, what does it say? There is no partiality with him. So, right here, in this newly inaugurated reality, the kingdom of Jesus, partiality. What is partiality? Favoring one person over another. Treating people differently because of their economic status, their background, or their race. That is not ultimately going to work. God doesn't acknowledge it. So the truth is that Paul's words and the story of Scripture at large were the foundation for the abolition of slavery. So to throw out the Bible because of slavery passages would be ignoring the fact that the Bible itself equipped Christians to do away with slavery. Okay. I'm pushing through here. So Paul doesn't recommend rebelling against their masters, but obedience. And Peter actually echoes Paul's words, and he even includes wicked masters. But neither of them are instructing slaves to obey their masters in ways that disobey God. Just things to keep in mind. So you remember in Acts, when Peter and John are preaching the gospel, and the Jewish authorities arrested them, they threatened them, and they said, okay, you can leave, but don't go preaching Jesus anymore. We'll let you off the hook if you stop preaching Jesus. And they say, okay, but who are we supposed to obey? You or God? We must obey God rather than men. So slaves are only to obey when their obedience can be done here as it says, as they would Christ, doing the will of God to the Lord and not to man. All right. So Paul doesn't condemn the institution of slavery here. Oh, how we, we wish he would. Right? And, and one thing that Esau Macaulay wrote in his book is, it's painful to read these, these words as a black Christian. It hurts <laughs> because there's, there's history there. There's, there's, there's like people use these words 
in the way that they should not have. People read the Bible in a way that was incorrect. People used the words of the Bible to undergird their despicable practices. And so he says, it hurts to read these words, but we got to read them because they're the word. So he doesn't condemn the institution, but he absolutely in no way condones or theologizes the institution of slavery at all. Unlike the institution of marriage. So that's why, you know, some people will read these passages and they'll be like, ow, ooh, don't like these. I'm going to kind of, I'm going to read this and kind of project, you know, the ethic forward. And so, you know, slavery was assumed here because it was part of the culture. It was a thing. But now we know better. And that's, that is true. We know better because of, of the truths that are found here. But some people will do the same when they read the passage on marriage. And they'll say, well, marriage and slavery was in the same kind of package here. So we can kind of like do away with what the Bible says about marriage too. But we can't do that. The reason is because when Paul instructs wives and husbands, he theologizes it. He, he goes back to the beginning. You know, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He goes back to Genesis to, to prove his point. And so he's using the word to say, no, no, this is, this is good. He doesn't do that with slavery. He instructs slaves, but he doesn't say, oh, because the, the master is the head of the slave because Christ is the head of the church. No, not at all. So we, can, we, we need to make sure we understand that. So nowhere in the Bible is there a passage that baptizes, condones, or sanctions slavery as an institution. And that's good. I'm glad for that. <laughs> Um, Paul says elsewhere to the Corinthian church, and he's talking to the, a similar group of people, a, a church full of, of slaves and slave owners. And what does he say? You know, he's talking about when you heard the gospel, when you became a Christian, and he says this. He says, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, Avail yourself of the opportunity, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You know, we read that and we say, do not be concerned about it. What do you mean, Paul? Why shouldn't we be concerned that we're slaves? But his priority here, as well as in that passage, his priority is to encourage slaves the lowest members of the society, to encourage them that their status as slaves does not affect their ability to follow Jesus. It does not inhibit their ability to love God, to serve him, to pour out their lives to him. Just because they are under their earthly master's authority doesn't mean they aren't able to fully love and worship Jesus. That's that's what their concern was. Like, I'm a slave. Can I, work, can I still be fu- a full participant here? And Paul says, absolutely, yes. So if you were a slave and you became a Christian, don't worry about that status as affecting your eternal status. So here in our passage today, we see Paul addressing the slaves first. Just like he did wives, just like he did children. And in other ancient household codes, not a thing. You just, you just address the husbands, you address the fathers, and you address the masters. 
But Paul here undermines it, flips it on its head. He addresses the lowest members of each category first, offering them an unprecedented level of dignity and recognition, as well as just acknowledging that they can make their own choices. Like They have their own will. They can, they can choose whether or not to, to do this or not. And he gives them that um, dignity. Okay, so that's a little bit of, little bit of something. But why would a passage like this, instructing slaves and their masters, apply to us today? You know, can't we just kind of, okay, this, this doesn't seem to apply. Can we, should we just skip this, you know, move on to spiritual warfare, <laughs> verse 10? Shouldn't, um, and of course, and like I said before, there are differences. <laughs> Praise God, none of us are slaves today. Praise God. But there are slaves in the world right now, just like Chris is one of her slides said. I read that there's roughly, probably more now, over 27 million slaves in the world right now. And so, of course, there are differences between this situation and the situations most of us find ourselves in today. For one thing, if you don't like your job, you can go find another one. That wasn't the case for these people. And if you don't like your job and you want it to be better, you, you can actually advocate for yourself. In a, but the reason you can do that is because of Christianity. So none of these instructions is dependent on an ownership relationship, but instead on an authority relationship. And what Paul doesn't do here, and nowhere the Bible does either, is abolish any kind of authority structure. That's, that's kind of hot and heavy right now in the culture is like, down to authority! But then another authority just rises up. That's just how things go. But what Paul does is he puts authority itself in its proper context. And that is everything. So how do we treat those in authority over us? Or how do we treat those over whom we have authority? How do we derive fulfillment from existentially stunting work? Work with a capital B boredom. <laughs> what are we to do with the reality that God has instituted authority in life and yet humans have twisted it to their own ends? You know, these, are, these are the the things that we can start to ask and derive value from this passage. And remember, these are instructions to slaves, many of whom, of course, had bummer bosses. And if they were instructed to treat their masters with respect, how much more do you think we are instructed today to treat those in authority over us with respect? And many of these, these men and women were probably given daily tasks that weren't especially stimulating intellectually. You know, it wasn't exactly their dream job or what they grew up wanting to do. And yet somehow Paul manages to instruct them to do it. How? With a sincere heart. And he calls the work they do the very will of God. Wow. 
So I think we have a few things to learn from these people, from this passage. So for those under authority, what does Paul say? We find in verses 5 through 8, he gives us a what? He gives us a how. Actually, he gives us six hows. And he gives us a why. Let's reread that, that section. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So this is a truly Pauline sentence. There's no periods there except for at at that very end. This is one long sentence. It's 59 Greek words and one command, one verb, obey. And he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. And that basically, that, that word just means masters according to the flesh. Those you find having authority over you in this body while you're here on earth. And that's contrasted with, as we'll see in verse 9, the master that is in heaven. So we got a, an earthly master here and then a heavenly master. So everything else, after Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters, describes the how and the why. So let's look at the hows. How should they obey? The first thing he says is with fear and trembling. So that word fear is the same word as in verse 21 when he instructs the entire community to submit to one another out of, your version might say, reverence. The word is fear. So out of the fear of Christ. And here he says, slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling. Basically, Paul is saying, Jesus has put this authority in your life. Respect him. Respect that office. Respect that. The fact that God has placed that person or persons in authority over you. Pretty simple. And then he continues, with a sincere heart. But that means having pure motives. And, and that will, will carry that out as we get into people pleasing. But then he says, as you would Christ. So in a similar way to wives and husbands and children and parents, we are to do this sort of looking through the person to that ultimate person. You know, we are to, to embody and, and do all these things not because of this person, but because of the person that stands. <laughs> you know, it's like you're looking, you're looking at someone, but you're actually looking way ahead to that, to that person that's on the horizon. Jesus is on the horizon, and he's in authority over all of it. And so Paul gives them that encouragement. And then he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. We're going to come back to that. But this has to do with impure motives. You know, why are you obeying? Why are you carrying out your duties? Why? Is it to impress your boss? Is it to get a promotion? Is it to get accolades? Is it to get a shout out? Is it to get kudos? Is it, why? And Paul says, don't do it for that reason. We're going to come back to that. And then he says, 
as servants of Christ, and the word is slaves, so as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And so, yeah, you might be slaves to a person, but you're actually slaves of, of another person. And when he says doing the will of God from the heart, it's actually the word soul. So we have heart in verse 5, soul in verse 6. And then finally, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So those are the hows. But then he gets to the why in verse 8. Why should we do this? He says, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus was either mentioned by name or referred to in every single verse. Just like he was in uh, the passage on marriage. Jesus is just built into this. Why? What is going on here? So the big takeaway that Paul wants both slaves and masters to get from this passage is that there is ultimately one authority. And both sides, both those in authority, those under authority, need to remember that there's one authority. And that's his big emphasis here. And if we look at the why, there in verse 8, we get a picture of this ultimate or final authority. The, uh, there's a, a, a word, it says receive. So knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. That's not a typical word for receive. It's actually more of an eschatological receive. What does that mean? It means you're probably not going to get a Tesla from Jesus for respecting and honoring your boss. I know, it's a bummer. (laughs) That word receive is the same word Paul uses when he talks to the Corinthians when he says this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. What is Paul doing here? He's, He's not preaching a prosperity thing. What he's doing is he's giving these low members of society, he's giving them hope. He's encouraging them. He is encouraging these lower status people, assuring them that Jesus both sees and will reward their faithfulness. Even if it isn't until that day, capital D. And that it's worth it. You know? So he tells the slaves to obey and he gives them the hows and the why. So what does he tell the masters? What does he tell those in authority? He only gives them one verse and he only gives them one what, one how, and one why. In verse 9 he says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Okay, so the what, the how, and the why. What is the what? The what is do the same to them. That's that's his command to the masters. Do the same to them. What does that mean? 
That's, that's kind of confusing. What same? Are you saying like, masters, obey your slaves? Is that what he's saying? No, probably not. But he is saying something there. And he's saying, bare minimum, do the same to them as in what you do. Serve Jesus, knowing that he is your authority. Treating them with respect, with sincerity, not people-pleasing, etc. Treat them well. And this was most assuredly countercultural in this time. For Paul to make such a broad stroke, treat, treat the slaves the same way as I just told them. So how? He says, stop your threatening. And this is interesting because there's a definite article there, which means the threatening is a capital T, which means this was probably some sort of common among slave owners practice. They had this thing that they did. It was called the threatening. (laughs) And they all did it. It was normal. Common business practice. You know, you got to keep those slaves in line somehow. And Paul says, enough. I don't care if that's culturally what you do. Stop doing it. Simple. And then he says, why? Because he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. They are slaves of Jesus, and so are you. He is no respecter of persons. He doesn't see them any differently than he sees you. Now that's countercultural. That is incredible. So, what are some takeaways for us 2,000 years later? Well, firstly, as we mentioned just briefly, the concept, the reality of authority in your life, whether it's held or over you, it's not going anywhere. Authority, power, isn't bad in and of itself. It actually points to a truer authority. So if you're under authority, whether it's in your job, your vocation, your program, your school, your any, anything where you could be under someone else's authority, remember that ultimately you are serving a much more important boss. And you can treat the one you have this way because you're serving someone else. And if you are in authority, if, if you have people under you that you supervise in, in some way, remember that ultimately you are also serving a much more important boss than yourself. And you can treat those under you this way because you're serving someone else. And what does Jesus say about how to handle being in authority? You know, he gives us some some tips. He says, when you're handed authority, when you have opportunities to step into leadership in whatever way, let me tell you how to do it. This is amazing. He says in Matthew 20, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over themselves. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, Jesus' followers. 
but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Christian leadership. Secondly, so authority isn't going anywhere. Secondly, people-pleasing. People-pleasing is empty. And I like that Paul uses this word. It, it literally is a word that says people-pleaser. And then the word for eye service is ophthalmodulos, eye service. And he coins that word. <laughs> Nowhere else is it used. And it's, this is an easy one for us because we get this. A lot of us are people-pleasers. I'm in that category myself. A lot of us have a hard time not worrying about what people think of our, of our, uh, our job well done or, or, or our reputation or, or what have you. And Paul says here, people-pleasing isn't, it's not that it's just a, not a good thing to do. It's actually not good enough. Why? Because when your boss isn't looking and you're not working hard, that's not good work, right? But when that's happening, he says, someone else is looking. (laughs) Someone else can see. So how do we do away with people-pleasing? And uh, there's a book that probably some of you have read called When People Are Big and God is Small. Honestly, like the title says it all, (laughs) right? It's not that we can just stop caring about what people think. We need to start caring about what someone else thinks. Jesus said, and this is kind of the negative version of that, but he says, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. Be afraid of the person who, after killing your body, can destroy your soul in hell. So it's not about lessening or demeaning our view of other people. It's about elevating our view of God. That's how we deal with people, please. But we also need to understand that God's not like people. And that's such good news. That's such good news. Jesus is a much better boss than your boss. And he's a much better boss than you. And people-pleasing goes the other way, too. It's not just for employees. Employers struggle with people-pleasing probably just as much or more. You can be a people-pleaser and be an employer. You know, if you have people under you and you're at the mercy of their opinions of you, just you're looking for praise or affirmation, that's also people-pleasing. And Jesus says, you don't need it. What does Paul say in verse 6? He says, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but how? As servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. I love this because it leads us to our, our third and final takeaway. That we can find fulfillment in our work. It's possible. We can find fulfillment. 
we can do the will of God from the heart. And like I said, that word for heart in verse 6 is soul. And so what's interesting here is Paul kind of builds the greatest commandment here. He says, he says work at whatever job you have with all your heart, verse 5, all your soul, verse 6, and all your goodwill. But the root word is mind. Doesn't that remind you of, of what Jesus said is the greatest commandment of all? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and some versions add, and all your strength. The word is muchness. <laughs> so what this means is that we can find meaning as well as find ways to adore God in our work. We can love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind by working with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. But as usual, the only way to do that is to remember what kind of a boss he is. Okay? The only way to do that is to receive his love for us first. Melissa just gave Thea a uh, glow-in-the-dark unicorn blanket uh, for her birthday. That was from you, right? Yeah. It's got unicorns all over it. You lay it out on, on the bed and, and make sure the lights are on most of the day. When you turn off the lights, all the unicorns start glowing. It's awesome. And, you know, we've been into it these, you know, the last few days. And um, what happened was I was putting the girls to bed uh, doing our whole routine. Uh, oh, turn off all the lights so we can look at the blanket. Do that, but only like a little corner of the blanket was glowing. Only a couple unicorns. It was a bummer. But what happened was the, the blanket was all crumpled up all day. It, didn't, it wasn't exposed to the light, and therefore it didn't glow in the dark. <laughs> right in the middle of that, I was like, I'm going to preach that because that is so good. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, we are in a dark world, and God has designed us to glow in the dark. But the only way we can glow in the dark is if we've been exposed to the light for sufficient length of time. <laughs> in order to shine brightly for Jesus, we need to spend time with Jesus in a get-to mentality versus a have-to mentality. Just like the moon reflects the sun. You know, that's, that's one way we can resist people-pleasing when the opinion of other people just doesn't have the same weight. We need to be before we do. That's huge. That's Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you've been saved by grace, not by works. And then he says it again. And then he says, but you are God's poem, workmanship. Creative in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. We need to spend time in God's presence, knowing who we are, knowing what he's done, and then we can go work. Knowing that the very work we do, like Chris was sharing, is a gift from him. It doesn't earn us any stars. If we totally botch it one day, we are not less in God's eyes. Because all of it is a gift based simply on his great love for you. We can do it with a good will, with a sincere heart, with proper motives, with all of our soul. 
And what does that even mean? It means we can really throw ourselves into our work. God's made us able. He's made us smart. He's made us in his image, which means we can work hard. And that's a gift. We don't want to be like the older brother in the prodigal son story. Do you remember him? You know, he's, he, he comes home from a 12, 16-hour day out on the family farm. He hears some singing, some barbecuing going on. And he's like, what is going on? Someone's like, oh, uh, your, your brother, you know, the one that ran away with your family fortune and squandered it? He came back. And your dad threw a party. And he's like, what? And what, is, what does he say? He says, all these years, talking to his dad, who's begging him to come inside and enjoy the party, he says, all these years I've slaved for you, and you never gave me a party. What's tragic in that story is that the younger son, the one who's, who's recklessly living, who, who comes to himself and goes, oh my word, even my father's slaves have it better than I do right now. I'm going to crawl back and beg him to just hire me, to indenture me into slavery in his house so I cannot uh, try and eat the pig slop from uh, Wilbur. Sorry, we just read that. Um, and then... So he's begging to be a slave in his father's house. But then here's his older brother. He's, he's already enslaved. He says, I've been slaving for you. So, the, whoa, the son wants to be a slave. He feels like he, he's only worthy enough to be a slave. And the father says, no, you're my son. I'm going to throw a party for you because I love you and you're back. And I'm thankful. And the older son doesn't want any of it because he wants to earn it. That's tragic, and the story's left open-ended. But what does the father say in return? He says, son, you are always with me, and all that, I, that, that is mine is yours. It's, already, it's always been there for you. We can't get this backwards. The work that we do for God is not slavery. It is freedom. And what's awesome is Jesus, while he was on this earth, he found beautiful meaning in the work he was doing. Convicting level meaning. The type of person who is so focused on on his work that he forgets to eat lunch. You know those type of people? I've never been that kind of a person. I've always been confused by that possibility that you could forget to eat lunch. But he says in, or it says in John 4, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Eat lunch. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has someone else brought him lunch? Like, we went out to all this trouble. Get him lunch. And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Talk about true meaning in work. Jesus found it, and he illustrated it for us. Last word. Many of us have, like it says, masters according to the flesh. But he who is all of our master, he who is all of our Lord, is in heaven. Jesus is the great equalizer. 
the King of kings and Lord of lords. And look what we get to study in Philippians after we're done with Ephesians. In chapter 2, it says, Jesus was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, Jesus His work was being the eternal son of God, taking on flesh, becoming a slave. But not not only a slave, but a slave who was put to death on a Roman cross, one of the most brutal executionary methods in history. This is the king of kings, the lord of lords, the boss of bosses, the shot caller. So if he did that, what does that mean for us? When we step into authority or into leadership, or when we step under authority or under leadership, we can remember that. That even Jesus, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, became a slave for us. Praise God. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the heart of Christ that it illustrates. I thank you for the heart of Christ that it offers to us. God, I pray for everyone here, whatever their vocation is today, Lord, that you would help them connect these dots to be able to connect their daily, uh, perhaps, you know, daily grind. Help them to connect it with the gospel of Jesus. Lord, show them ways that they can, they can be the hands and feet of Jesus at their job, at their vocation, at their program, at their school, wherever it is. And lead us, God. Help us to find meaning in the work that you've called us to do. Not find our identity in it, because our identity is already established. We are children of God but you give us the chance to partner with you, to co-labor with you. You say the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Lord, help us to be a worker in your harvest. I pray for any here right now that, that are on the fence when it comes to submitting themselves to the lordship, to the, to the salvation of Jesus Christ. I pray that they would jump off the fence and jump in completely, knowing that, you're so, you're so much better of a boss than we are of ourselves. Lord, you know us. You prescribe rest. You prescribe joy. You prescribe praise to you. You prescribe others-focused mentality. You prescribe a much better life than we can construct and curate for ourselves. And so once again, afresh, whether it's the first time for you or the 300th time for you, I invite us all to just once again entrust our lives completely to him, knowing that he is faithful, knowing that at the end it'll be him up there and us down here on our knees.
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.